Welcome to AudioPie's English Literature and Language Show. You can dip into huge chunks of over 19 series for free and learn on the go. Happy listening, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of this series on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Sign of Four. This episode will be discussing the events of Chapter Four. So, at the end of the previous chapter, our heroes have been led across the winding city streets of London and have found themselves in a particularly unsavoury part of the city, where they're greeted by a Hindu servant wearing bright clothing. This incongruous Oriental figure welcomes them into the house at the behest of an unknown gentleman. Conan Doyle left his readers in a real moment of suspense with his last chapter. So there's a lot of expectation for this chapter that there will be some answers forthcoming. As readers, we're given something of a promise of answers by the title of the chapter, the story of the bald-headed man. This promise of a story is also a promise of revelation and encourages us to read on. The Indian servant takes the party down a sordid and common passage leading them into the depths of the house which is described as being ill-lit, worse furnished and possessing a strangely yellow glow. They are led into a room in which stands a small man with a bristle of red hair and a highly prominent bald spot. His hands, Watson notes, writhe constantly and his face is in perpetual flux, now smiling, now scowling, never resting. The man's appearance appears to mirror that of his surroundings. Watson notes that the man possesses a too-visible line of yellow and irregular teeth, a colour that has already been associated with sordid spaces and oriental figures. Remember that the servant is described as wearing a yellow sash and turban. Conan Doyle is obviously trying to link this person to both the unsavoury lower-class neighbourhood in which this scene is taking place and also to the disturbing and discomforting threat of the foreign other. Yes, it's not exactly the most flattering or welcoming of descriptions. The appearance of the small man is enough to set us readers on edge. He is obviously not of the same class as our three adventurers, so how is he linked to the story? What's perhaps the most striking about this scene is how Conan Doyle juxtaposes the sordidness and decay of this strange man against the sumptuousness of the room in which they find themselves. The gentleman describes it as an oasis of art in the howling desert of South London. And what an oasis it is. Watson describes with astonishment the appearance of the apartment which is covered in the richest and glossiest of curtains and tapestries a range of oriental vases and rich paintings, along with two great tiger skins, which increased the suggestion of eastern luxury, as did a huge hooker. So not only do we have a contrast of obvious wealth and opulence in a place that should be impoverished and filled with squalor, but we also have an overtly oriental aesthetic being put to work here. In fact, the term Oriental holds quite a lot of academic weight. 
The term Orientalism is often used to describe a form of literature, or art more widely, that constructs a certain idea of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and Asian cultures. In his book Orientalism, published in 1978, the critic Edward Said describes Orientalism as a system of representation which usually creates very patronising and colonial representations of the East. In particular, you find that such representations present the East as a space that is undeveloped and threatening. One of the biggest tropes of Orientalism is the way in which the Orient and its peoples are presented as being irrational, weak and feminised in contrast with the highly rational, strong and masculine Western characters. Keep an eye out for these very reductive contrasts throughout the story as they give a clear indication to the Victorian reader as to whose side we should be on, as not only are East and West divided in terms of race and class, but also morality. Take this scene, for instance. We currently have a direct meeting between the East and West, with Sherlock and Watson representing the strong, masculine, intelligent West and the mysterious man and his nervous habits, old appearance and unusual decor, aligned with the supposed weakness of the East. We as readers are thus directed to distrust the man, as he is associated with the threatening and unknown reaches of the Orient. We soon find out that this little man is one Thaddeus Sholto, the son of the major Sholto, who died a week before Mary's pearls began to arrive. Thaddeus quickly reveals himself to be a very nervous and anxious figure, asking Dr. Watson to check the status of his heart valves, which he has been fretting about for a long period of time. While Watson examines the man, Sholto reveals that Mary's father died of a heart attack many years ago. Despite this faux pas, Thaddeus quickly moves on, with promise of providing Mary with answers. Not just answers, but justice. He is keen to keep what he reveals private, however, as he is worried that his twin brother Bartholomew will be upset should the truth go public. He quickly leaps into his story, explaining how his father returned from India a rich man, bringing with him a considerable sum of money, a large collection of valuable curiosities and a staff of native servants. He tells the trio how Major Sholto feigned confusion to them, as well as the police, when Mary's father went missing. But the brothers knew that their father was afraid of something. Soon after the disappearance of Mary's father, Major Sholto employed bodyguards and displayed a curious aversion to men with wooden legs. At one point, even shooting a wooden-legged man who was merely a harmless tradesman. This nervousness increased when he received a letter from India which he would not share with them. At this point, he became very ill and sickened until his death. It was on his deathbed that he confessed to his sons that he was racked by guilt about the treatment of Mary after she was orphaned. He tells Thaddeus and his brother how he and Mary's father came into possession of considerable treasure in India and having brought it over to England, found themselves in a disagreement about how best to divide their loot. At one particularly heated moment in their argument, Morstan, suffering from a paroxysm of anger, springs out of his chair and clutches his breast. 
Their argument brings on a heart attack, which brings about the death of Morstan. Thaddeus tells them how, at that moment, his father had been paralysed with fear and regret. The circumstances of the death would look suspicious to the police, and any official inquiry could not be made without bringing out some facts about the treasure, which of course Major Sholto wished to remain secret. While he was deciding what to do, one of his Indian servants comes in and assumes that Sholto has killed Morstan. Do not fear, Sahib, he said. No one need know that you have killed him. Let us hide him away, and who is the wiser? The Major tells his sons that he is at fault, not just for hiding the body, but for keeping both halves of the treasure. He asks that they make restitutions to Mary and send her the pearls from a beautiful tiara which he kept on his bedside table. Just as he is about to reveal the location of the rest of the treasure, he sees a face at the window and shouts out for his sons to keep him out, for Christ's sake, keep him out. Thaddeus describes the face at the window as having cruel eyes and an expression of concentrated malevolence. They rush to the window, scaring him off, but return to their father's bedside to find him dead. The two brothers searched the garden, but could find no sign of the man whose face they had seen. Returning again to their father's deathbed, they found that a piece of paper had been fixed to his chest, with the words, The Sign of Four, written on it. Just when you may have been losing all hope that the mystery would ever be revealed, Conan Doyle gives us a huge amount of information in a very short space of time. He gives us the answers to the disappearance of Mary's father and the mystery of the pearls, but has now introduced a whole new host of questions. What is the sign of four? Who is the man with the bearded, hairy face with wild, cruel eyes and an expression of concentrated malevolence? Does he perhaps have a wooden leg? Where is the treasure? The plot takes an unexpected turn, and just when one story has been solved, presents us with a brand new puzzle to complete. Watson notes that Sherlock seems particularly stimulated by this extraordinary narrative, and remarks that Sherlock's earlier complaining about the commonplace of life must surely be put to rest at hearing this strange tale and new mystery. Interestingly, the point at which Watson comments on Sherlock's engagement with the problem coincides with several descriptions of Thaddeus smoking eastern tobacco from the sedative hooker pipe. The slow puff of the pipe recalls images of Sherlock from the opening scene in which after injecting the cocaine solution, he leans back luxuriously in his armchair and sends up thick blue wreaths from his pipe. Conan Doyle is playing with doubling here, linking Sholto and Sherlock through their indulgence in different foreign vices. After these revelations, Thaddeus tells us that the two brothers agreed to send Mary the treasure which their father wished her to have, and had been doing so for the last six years. However, the reason for Thaddeus contacting Mary at this point is that their father's treasure, up to this point undiscovered by the brothers, had been discovered. Thaddeus, Sherlock, Watson and Mary all pile into a carriage and set off to Thaddeus's family home to claim Mary's half of the wealth. 
It turns out that Thaddeus's brother Bartholomew found the treasure through a series of painstaking measurements of the family home. Having determined the treasure was not buried in the grounds of the home, he instead mapped out every dimension of the house and found that no matter how many times he measured the height of the building and the rooms within it, he was missing four feet. The treasure was found in a sealed alcove at the top of the house and is valued to contain near half a million sterling. That's equivalent to 60 million in today's money. At this point, we leave Thaddeus' story within a story and return to Watson's own thoughts. He reveals that, despite feeling like he should be happy for Mary, who will soon be very rich, he is distraught. Surely it was the place of a loyal friend to rejoice at such news, yet I am ashamed to say that selfishness took me by the soul and that my heart turned heavy as lead. Watson realises that this wealth will permanently destroy any hopes he has of being with Mary. She will go from being a needy governess to the richest heiress in England, locating her firmly in the upper class and thus unable to marry a man such as himself. While usually marriage serves as a way of transcending class boundaries, this is only true for female characters. A woman may marry into the upper classes, but the same cannot be said of men marrying above their station. Watson is thrown into a state of turmoil and is unable to answer basic medical questions. The chapter ends with the party arriving at Thaddeus Sholto's family home and a new adventure begins. Thanks for listening. See you in the next pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to search for and listen to the next episode in the series to build your topic knowledge. Hit the Acast Plus link in the show description to become a premium supporter and unlock access to every episode in every series for as long as you need. We also make GCSE and A-level content for history, RE, sociology and psychology. Happy listening, everyone.